was fortunate this February to be invited to the World Government Summit in Dubai for their Artificial Intelligence Governance Roundtable and take part in some discussions that are rather interesting at sort of the cutting edge of applications of AI and sort of the social and public sector. Lots of interesting executives there from Hitachi, from, from large organizations, um, some AI researchers. And one of those researchers happens to be one of the arguably best known folks in the domain of neural networks in terms of research in that space, or of earliest researchers in the space of recurrent neural networks, and that is Jürgen Schmidhuber. So Jürgen uh, is well known in the machine learning and artificial intelligence domain. Uh, his sort of recurrent neural network framework is used in speech recognition applications in Google and in smartphones. Um, and he's working on a lot of different applications now in heavy industry and self-driving cars and other spaces. Um, and, and Jürgen is, is sort of one of the, the giants, certainly in Europe, in the domain of AI in general, uh, kind of research writ large. And we speak in this interview about the future of manufacturing. Jürgen has a lot of sort of interesting perspectives on how the general progression in artificial intelligence, in other words, making machines more genuinely intelligent, being able to actually interact with the world, how that will affect other industries outside of where AI is arguably best known today in spaces like kind of consumer tech and, and advertising. Where is that going to translate to machines in the physical world? And Jürgen, I think, puts a pretty good wrapper around that conceptually for folks uh, who might not be as familiar. So if you're in the manufacturing space, this will be, I think, an interesting interview to tune into. And if you're just interested in what the next phase in AI might be like, in other words, um, what are the new capabilities that might be unlocked in AI systems? What, what does smarter look like from kind of a, a ground level of AI? Um, I think Jürgen actually frames it pretty well, pretty succinctly. And again, this is, this is a fellow who certainly knows his stuff. I caught up with Jürgen for this interview literally the night before I left uh, to head back to Boston. So I had to head right back for business after the, the roundtable sessions here. And I met with Jürgen in the hotel lobby of one of the larger hotels in Dubai where we were put up together uh, and sort of caught up with him over at dinner and then found some time in the side of the lobby to be able to peel off and, and interview for about 20 minutes and kind of deep dive into manufacturing. If you hear some hotel music in the background, some random kind of piano noises or something, then uh, I apologize. That's exactly why. I did want to make sure I could sit down with Jürgen before I left early the next morning. He was kind enough to catch up after a dinner and riff with me a bit on, on uh, the topic of AI and manufacturing. So without further ado, this is Jürgen Schmidhumer here on the AI and Industry Podcast. I'm Dan Fagella. Without further ado, let's roll right in. So Jürgen, I want to start off with sort of the, the general paradigm of deep learning and machine learning as it stands now. So if people associate what's in their phone and what happens on Netflix as the state of the art, and in many respects it is, I think it's, it's impressive technology, but I know that for you, that there is sort of another important element to intelligence that maybe isn't being addressed there. Maybe we could just paint that dynamic before we go farther. At the moment, almost all AI and deep learning is about passive pattern recognition on your smartphone, for example, you speak to your smartphone and it has an LSTM which recognizes your speech and uh, other networks that recognize images and fingerprints and whatever. And all of that is passive in the sense that your smartphone doesn't have fingers like a robot. Now, 
active AI is when a robot or some other kind of active process interacts with an environment and shapes the data that is coming in through its own actions. That's what babies do. And machines that have output actions, that control industrial processes, machines that make t-shirts, that make shoes, that make all the stuff that you see around us. And so, obviously, physical embodiment is kind of a big part of this, uh, at least from the way you're articulating it. And I don't know, manufacturing is maybe as a percent of the total GDP of the world, um, a pretty, pretty big chunk compared to maybe just marketing. In terms of that active learning, I think when people think about a robot that makes t-shirts, they assume, okay, that's going to be action A, B, C, the threads go in this way, C, D, E, and then the t-shirt's done. And we don't really need to deep learn that. We don't need to iteratively tinker with reality. But Clearly, there's some opportunities for that to be done. Where, where do you see that as a sort of requirement? I think people see these, these just pure autonomous that, that just do one thing, but where is more opportunity in manufacturing? So as you mentioned in the beginning, most of the profits in AI today are really in marketing and in selling ads. And you are interacting with some platform and it uses uh, the data that it gets from you to predict which articles do you want to read next and which ad are you most likely to click at next and so on. So all of that can be done by this passive pattern recognition thing. Now in the not so distant future, we will have something that we don't have at the moment. It will be a little robot that we teach like a kid to do something complicated, such as assembling a smartphone. At the moment, you need humans that do that. How will it work? You will say, look here, robot, look. And you will just talk to it and interact with it uh, through its cameras. You won't have a data glove or some fancy equipment. No, you will talk to it like you talk to a kid and you will say, let's take this slab of plastic here and look. Let's take the screwdriver like that. And now let's screw in the screw like that. Hey, not like that, like that, not like that, like that. And then after some failures, it will be able to do it for the first time. And then by itself, it will learn to figure out how to do it more quickly with less energy. And finally, it will be able to do it much better than I could do it. And once it's doing it really well, then we freeze the learning process and we make a million copies and license it. And that's going to change almost every activity in our economy. To tee up on that, you use the term data glove, and I think the audience might want to just get a quick update on that. The data glove, from what you're stating here, would be a glove that has a bunch of sensors. So if a human does an action with their hand, the machine is sort of being supervised with exactly what those little motor motions are. Is that what you meant? Data glove. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a fancy glove which has all kinds of sensors, and then you, as a supervising teacher, you try to show the robot how to pick up something, for example. And uh, that's very different from how babies learn. How do babies learn? Well, most of the time they learn on their own. They have no parent who says, and now use your fifth muscle in your pinky a little bit more like this. 
and they don't have a teacher who provides target signals for all these muscle fibers that they have. No, by themselves they figure out how to do that. And we know, at least in principle, how to build artificial agents equipped with artificial curiosity, which are motivated like little babies to learn what are the consequences of my actions and how can I predict those consequences and how can I learn to model the world and the physics of my environment in a way that makes me become a more and more general problem solver. In principle, we know how to do that and um, it's going to scale and it's going to affect every part of our economy, all of production. Robots are going to quickly and economically learn to do all kinds of complicated things that at the moment only humans can do. And we use this baby analogy to sort of get people to imagine how that would come about. I wonder if in the initial transition here, so let's say we, we keep with the iPhone construction case. So putting together an iPhone, we have all the parts and, and something has to manually and, and in a very dexterous fashion assemble them into a phone. When I think about a future there, I would imagine maybe there will be a whole bunch of people with data gloves doing maybe some part of that and that maybe with enough of those people we could get some part of the way. Clearly, on you know from, from what you're articulating, it seems as though there's probably going to be portions of that that we couldn't supervise, that, that a machine will have to bumble forward and, and actually kind of hit on by itself. Do you think that there will be any traction at all in manufacturing with a purely supervised taking of maybe human or, or existing machine dexterity, really figuring all that out in sensors and then trying to replicate and feel that out in, in kind of current means? Or do you think the whole shift has to happen to this kind of baby type learning for things like iPhones to be built from scratch? There will be a role for supervised learning, no doubt. But it's limited in many ways. And the most exciting tasks are those where there is no human teacher who knows how to do it in a good way. There are so many industrial processes currently controlled by machines where there are a bunch of knobs and there are a couple of experts who sometimes try new constellations of these knobs to figure out what is a good constellation. For example, in the chemical industry, you have big vats and you have inputs, chemical substances, and then in there you have a bunch of sensors and they give you a, a very incomplete picture of what's happening in these vats. There's incomplete burning and um, nobody knows what is the best way of injecting at what time these additional catalyzers and stuff like that. So there are very interesting and very complex processes where no human knows the optimal control no recipe, right? No and so, yeah, and so you want these machines to learn to figure out by themselves how to optimize these processes and how to create more of the interesting product with cheaper ingredients, for example. So all these questions where at the moment uh, the supervising human teachers also don't have a good answer. And that's uh, the most exciting part of it. Yeah, and I think I want to separate what you're saying from what I think maybe is often thought of as things computers can do that people can't. So Netflix, for example, would have a very hard time with people manually supervising what individual users like for movies, but then you get this meta system that you give it any individual user and beyond any human expert, 
it can get them hooked on, on watching films. Obviously, you're talking about something different. The way I imagine what you're saying being different is that in, in the Netflix universe, there's maybe only a certain number of permutations of things someone can click or do or whatever, and it's a controlled little inside world where we have all these nice little bits of feedback. While in the chemical plant, we might want to look at gauges. We might want to put new sensors on new things. We might want to feel out the whole world in a much more robust way to get the information that we want as opposed to just drinking it in from a box um, of a digital ecosystem. Yeah. Is this the right analogy? Or? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And just look at yourself. How did you learn to become a smart being? You didn't download data from Netflix or from Facebook or something. No. You played around with toys and you invented your own experiments to figure out how the world reacts in response to your actions. And that's how you learn to predict what's going to happen if I do that. And you get an intrinsic reward for coming up with action sequences, with experiments that lead to data that has a new interesting pattern, interesting in the sense that there is some regularity which you didn't know yet. And now suddenly you know it because your learning system is acquiring this regularity and you can measure the depth of the insight that the learning system has and this becomes a reward for the part of the learning system that is generating the action sequences, the experiments. So you have artificial curiosity. Yeah, and, and so that artificial curiosity in the example of the chemical plant might be required if we want to add new sensors or interpret them in a new way or maybe look at a different part of the process. We sort of sense the world in that feeling out way that maybe is baby-like or human-like, yeah. where we have to prod the world to get new information in, in that curious sense, as opposed to, here's all the numbers, I'm going to line them up in the right charts based on all these previous scores. That's right. You have to probe the world like a scientist. And these little babies, they are little scientists. And they continually expand their horizon and they learn new things that they didn't know yet, like apples fall or other objects always make the same noise after a certain predictable amount of time when you throw them to the ground. So they learn all kinds of regularities and uh, the same is true for these artificially curious machines. So here's, I think, where we can shift this into what's coming and into the future a bit. You know, when I look across maybe the whole landscape, if we just look at manufacturing for now, clearly this approach could be extended into any domain of sort of what we now interpret as intelligence. But if we just hang in manufacturing, is there a type of manufacturing process or a type of manufactured product that you think these kinds of approaches are most likely to nestle themselves into first. You know, when I think about that question, I say, okay, maybe Jurgen would think it would be things that are manufactured a lot because we'd have a whole lot of practice. So maybe car parts or iPhones. Maybe Jurgen would think it would start with maybe, uh, you know, not rocket science level stuff. So maybe an iPhone isn't the right first experiment where we're going to see this in a real factory. Maybe it's something a little bit less complicated before we step our way up. Where, where do you think that traction will take? Yeah, let me give you an example. When we started our company, Nathan's, in 2014, all the investor calls came from the Pacific Rim. And this has greatly changed because many of these European makers of machines have woken up and have realized the truth of what I mentioned before, that the next big wave of AI is really active AI and AI that is controlling machines that make things. And suddenly we have substantial investments from old industry 
realizing that their old control processes are going to be transformed. For example, one thing which is already public is an investment by Schott. Schott is a leading maker of glass. It's a German firm? Yeah, Schott? it's owned by Zeiss and you have it on your smartphone probably oh, because yeah, you probably. have the little lenses yeah. there. Got it. Billions of these little lenses are all over the world and they're really quality glass. And now to make good glass, you have to do a lot of things right. And these guys have more than a hundred years of experience and that's uh, the reason why they know how to do it well. But they are realizing that this is still far from optimal as far as we can judge. And that baby-like AI that can learn by generating its own experiments will be able to, or should be able to, further improve these processes, not only for making glass, but for all kinds of chemical reactions and uh, industrial processes. In the end, everything, all the material around you, the tables, the chairs, the glasses, everything you see around you, everything that is being made by some machine, with the help of additional humans that helps the machines to, to do it well, all of that is going to be affected because more and more of the complex stuff that currently can be done only by humans is going to be done by active learning machines. And so you use the example of materials here as kind of a first place. Um, you know, a lens obviously isn't the whole smartphone. It's a very important part. No, the glass is, is clearly a critical element here. You don't have a smartphone without the glass, uh, without the, the camera. And, you know, you're talking about maybe the plastics or whatever, the fabrics of, of the chairs that we're sitting on right now. Do you suspect that materials might be or more, I suppose I would say simple parts. Of course, glass is rather complicated, but it's it's one of many parts in, let's say, something like an iPhone. Might that be where traction could begin, or do you think it's just as likely that such an approach would be involved in the full iPhone process as in just the lens? Or do you see there being kind of baby steps, if we keep the baby analogy, you know? Yeah. I think you will see um, baby steps in all kinds of different applications. At some point in the not-so-distant future, the first killer robot application will come. At the moment, all robots have really small mass production numbers. You know? There is no robot that has been produced a billion times. Maybe the first robot is going to be a toy robot, a little furry thing, and it will have eyes and ears and will listen to you, but it will not be mission critical. The kids will love it because with artificial curiosity, it's going to do always something interesting, new, ex trying to expand its horizon of predictability, and that's why it will look interesting from the perspective of a kid which will be interested in how this little guy is exploring again and again different parts of the world and so on. And you tell it, come here, and it comes here, but maybe it doesn't, just like your cat, so maybe also doesn't. So some non-mission critical toy robot like that might be the first killer app. I'm not sure who is going to make it first. It might be some Japanese company. Yeah. Uh, who knows? But um, something that is active, that shapes the incoming data through its own actions, and uh, in that sense is much more sexy than what you have on your smartphone, which is passive pattern observation. Yeah, maybe closer to some degree. And, and again, not to, to downplay some of the leaps in, in AI now, but clearly closer to maybe what we'd assume intelligence to be in the baby analogy that you've mm. made. When you say a killer app, you mean there will potentially be a first 
physical robot that gets those big manufactured numbers, those billion numbers, that maybe is it through how many iterations and interactions it has that it will be able to become as prominent of a killer app as you say? Mm. Is it is do we need those billion numbers to drink in that much information and learn and be curious in that many different nodes to kind of coalesce into, whoa, something that kind of can master the physical world? Like do we need those big numbers? Not really. So huh. uh, I just um, gave that example because at the moment, the only stuff that is copied a billion times is software. And it's easy to do that. It's really hard to have a market-oriented product which is so attractive that a billion people want to buy it, such that it's really something physical that you want to have in your home. And, you know, the number of robots of a certain type at the moment are at most a million often much less than that, a few thousands. Yeah, the Roombas or whatever, those little vacuums or something, right? Yeah, something like that. Uh, The um, industrial robots and the car companies and whatever. But uh, these are really small numbers compared to what you would expect from a killer. Something like a Tamagotchi for the physical world. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where all the kids tell their parents, yeah, we need one of these, and it's cheap enough such that it really um, becomes... A killer app and has to be cheap enough as well and of course um, that's going to be possible only to the extent that the current trends in computing keep up every five years uh, computers are getting 10 times cheaper and it looks like this is going to last for a while it's an old trend that has held since 1941 since susan built the first working program control computer the physical limits are still far out uh, for that for the end of that trend So probably it's going to stay with us for a while, and that means that in maybe not so distant future, we will have enough brain power to make that compatible with a small, cheap robot, which has a few eyes and and, uh, ears, and is sophisticated enough to translate these incoming data streams into meaningful actuator sequences that make it walk and do all the interesting things that you would like to see from your little artificial toy robot. And so maybe in closing here, just to try to put a nutshell on where you're headed, it sounds like the progress might be in a whole bunch of different domains at once. It's tough to sort of call out exactly what type of process might be overhauled by this active machine learning paradigm of which you articulate, but that it's possible that this really gets on the radar at some point with people when that killer app threshold is crossed. That's when maybe your layperson will realize that this is something different than Netflix. Yeah. And before that, it's already going to be... um visible in companies that just improve their industrial processes through um, machines that learn to control these processes better. Yeah, so it'll hit the ground running there before, let's say, your your average person who likes tech at home will realize that this is a thing. It's so hard to predict because maybe tomorrow somebody is going to build this cheap robot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It could go either way. Okay, well, I hope it does. Jürgen, thanks so much for the interview. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of AI and Industry. This is your host, Dan Fagella. I hope that we catch you next week. Many of our executive listeners often get great ideas from our podcasts or our newsletters, but they end up coming to us for more help. So they might see some research project that we did with the World Bank, and they might want to do some of their own research on deeper market opportunities for AI in a specific sector or understanding the growth rates of AI in a certain domain. 
Uh, they might have seen some AI business strategy work that we've done with a pharmaceutical company and maybe ask about things along those lines or see one of the presentations that we've given at the United Nations and ask if we can speak at an event. Uh, and while we certainly do these things, uh, we're certainly involved with clients on pretty big projects on a regular basis, a lot of the time these messages will just end up in my personal inbox. People will find my email or they'll just find me on LinkedIn and send along a message. And this ends up being actually pretty tough to juggle at this point, given the travel schedule and given all the, the client projects that we're involved in. And few people actually know, particularly people who only listen to the podcast and, and aren't on Emerge.com or on the newsletter, uh, don't know that we actually have a services page that lists what we can help with. So we are not the best at everything, but in terms of what we do, which is mapping the capability space of AI and conveying that to executives in ways that help them win in the market, specific services tailored to that can be found at emerj.com slash services. So here at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, we work with government departments, we work with public companies, uh, we work with organizations who are serious about making AI a competitive advantage. And again, we actually do list sort of the programs that we have. So many of the podcast listeners don't know this. These messages end up in my inbox and then I'm you know, traveling for two weeks and I feel really bad that I get back to people later, but you can reach us through that services page or simply send along an email at services at emerj.com, services at emerj.com. From there, Dylan or Marcus or one of our team members will be able to get back to you much more quickly uh, than I would via LinkedIn. So if you're interested in doing more with what you've learned here, if you have serious business initiatives related to artificial intelligence and you want to take your organization to the next level, just simply reach us at emerge.com slash services, that's emerj.com slash services, or just email services at emerge.com, that's emerge with a J. So thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode. Next week, again, we're going to be diving into AI use cases and trends and conveying the transferable lessons that you can bring to your organization. And I look forward to having you here next week.